the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and you're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, life questions, pretty much anything and everything that's on your heart. We'll do the best that we can. All you have to do is call us. Now, I realize that there's not a lot of people thinking about a radio show today, um, but if you're listening in your car or uh, you just have something going on, perhaps this would be a time to get in and get those questions answered. 210-340-9585. 340-9585. If you're outside the local area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, it's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, uh, or you can send them in using our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you are one of the few driving in your car and you've kind of hung around town, uh, you can use the free KSLR mobile app. Use your hands-free feature of the phone and be connected directly to our studio producer. One more time, 340-9585. Well, I just got some information that it's National Stuffing Day. That makes me happy because... The stuffing that Paula makes for our turkey is one of my favorite things. All of that to say, I pray that you all have a wonderful Thanksgiving. The next time somebody calls it Turkey Day, say it's not Turkey Day, it's Thanksgiving to Jesus Day. And I hope you have a great time with family members in West and Johnson City. I want you to know that we are praying for you. I've been praying for you since your phone call yesterday. I pray that everything will go well as your family seeks reconciliation. Um, God bless you, man. Keep us posted how things are going after the holiday. Uh, we're going to have church here tonight. This is usually one of our least attended Wednesday nights just because everybody's cooking and people are gone. But, um, you know, if... Five people show up or 500 people show up. It doesn't matter. We're going to teach the Word. And tonight I am doing a special Thanksgiving message, sort of a combination of New Testament and Old Testament, but just to emphasize the importance of being grateful to God. I said this on the program yesterday, and I'll say it tonight as well, but um, gratitude is a fuel that, that powers our walk with Jesus. Gratitude is that thing that helps us to keep our eyes on Jesus, where Paul says to keep your hearts and minds set on things above. The heart is the place of affection, the mind the place of decision. And the only way we can do that with any consistency at all is to truly be grateful for all that God has done. So I pray you have a great Thanksgiving day with your families. Um, Hope nobody's eating alone. You don't have to. We've got a a thing here at our church where um, we have military families and people that have newly moved in, and we encourage them, don't be alone just because you don't know anybody. And we've kind of married up families that will host and families that need to be hosted. And it's always a great time. So uh, have a wonderful, wonderful time tomorrow. We will not be live tomorrow, so there will no date to edition. It will be a rebroadcast, and the same thing is true for Friday's program. 
Um, we're going to take the holiday for the next couple of days as well. Uh, we will be having our church service here on Friday night. We'll be doing the first part of Acts chapter 28. So we're going to be doing church, but the rest of the, the, the day events in school are going to be all closed up. So all of that to say... I'm thankful. <laughs> One other thing, you know, I've told you before that the kids come in here every weekday. The kids aren't in school today. But every weekday we get a bunch of kids from 10 to 20 of them who come in here and they want to pray for the radio program before we go on. Well, because the school's closed today, I kind of went ahead and producer and I, we prayed. And about three minutes till 4 o'clock we get a phone call. A couple of the kids got together and they said, okay, we're ready to pray. And I was so blessed by that. So, Jaden and Melody, thank you so much for doing that. Okay, let me get to some questions that we have been sent in as we await uh, any phone calls. Here's a question from our email inbox from Willie. He says, Hello, Pastor. I'm struggling to understand about the tradition of celebrating Christmas, the meaning of the Christmas tree, the ornament and lights. Would you be able to clarify and help me understand this? Thank you so much, and God bless you. Willie, thank you. Uh, I, I, I really didn't expect my first Christmas question uh, before Thanksgiving. Um, you know, I, I think the one thing that we have to understand, Willie, is that, that Christmas, is, is uh, its genesis was in the old pagan celebrations of Saturnalia. So um, there, there's no biblical tradition uh, that celebrates Christmas other than we are to celebrate, of course, the birth of our Lord every single day. But, but here's what I really like about the Christmas celebration. As you know, there are some pretty staunch legalists had pagan origins, so we shouldn't celebrate Christmas. That's what pagans do. We're not to be like pagans in this world. But Willie, here's the thing that we need to understand. What God specializes in is taking worldly things and repurposing them, redeeming them for the benefit and for the glory of God. And that's what he's done with Christmas. So we celebrate Christmas even though the tradition in December has pagan origins. We celebrate it because what more is there to celebrate than the birth of our Lord and Savior? And it's a reminder every year, one day a year, where the whole world's attention is turned to the birth of a baby, a miraculous baby at that, who would become the Savior of the world. It's an amazing thing to consider and worthy of celebrating. So what we do, we take the old pagan celebration and we flip it right side up and we celebrate the birth of Jesus. Now the meaning of the Christmas tree and the ornament and the lights, I think, is something else that we have been, as Christians, have been criticized for at times. Uh, you know, that's all celebrate this pagan holiday. Um, we remember that Jesus is the light of the world. And I have no idea what the origin of it was or where it started, but the idea of, of lighting up the Christmas tree is a wonderful thing. And it's, it's the reason I think most Christian families celebrate uh, by decorating the tree as a family. You tell your kids the stories. You start with a star on the top, and you talk about what that was all about. And these Christmas trees, uh, well, they give us a great opportunity to raise our children up in the traditions of our faith. And we can use every opportunity to teach. What a great time. Kids being taught, they don't even know it. They're having fun. I remember you know, Paula is is such a decorator when, when we had kids. And she would actually make popcorn and her and the kids would sew it together and wrap it around the Christmas tree. And then we'd put the little sprinkly things that hang on the leaves and the lights and all those things. And, of course, I wasn't saved. And when Paula got saved, our kids were a little bit older, but, but we were able to take a pagan celebration in a house of unbelievers and turn it into something that has become very special. So um, that's there's no specific origin date. There's nobody who said, you know, I think this would be a good thing to do. But we've been celebrating the birth of Christ, Willie, from the moment we got born again. That's what really is important. One other thing I want to talk about, Willie, is the date. Uh, it is almost certain that Jesus was not born on December 25th or the equivalent day of December 25th. We don't know when he was born. It probably was around the month of December. 
um, I say that um, knowing that people say, well, no, there wouldn't be shepherds in the field if it was cold in December. But remember, these would have been the, the, the temple sacrifice shepherds. These would have been the, the, the sheep that were being raised and prepared for temple sacrifices. And so there would always be sheep and there would always be shepherds. But the whole idea is it doesn't matter what day it is because for me, today's Christmas. I know tomorrow's Thanksgiving, but today's Christmas. And tomorrow we'll be giving thanks because God became a baby. One more thing, Willie, I want you to think about this. Imagine what that first Christmas was like when Jesus was born. He'd been growing in a teenager's womb. And the one who before being planted in that womb by the Holy Spirit was accepting the worship of angels, was majestic in all of his glory. Remember Isaiah chapter 6, we're told by the Apostle John in the 12th chapter of his gospel that Isaiah saw Jesus. He saw the angels around the throne saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And yet, that king traveled through the birth canal of a teenage girl and was born into abject poverty, surrounded by animals. I absolutely love the humility of his entrance. That, Willie, is something worth celebrating. Thanks for the question, Willie. God bless you. I appreciate you listening to the program. Uh, here is a question from Jason. He says, Pastor Ron, did God create evil since he created everything? Um, he didn't, and that's not a contradiction. God did create everything that we see. Um, we can see the effects of evil, but we don't see evil. But here's what God did, Jason. God knew that by giving humans the capacity to choose... He knew that evil would enter the world. I get questions all the time. Well, if God knew we were going to be evil, why did he create us? Or why did he create people that he knows aren't going to, to accept uh, Jesus and end up spending eternity in hell? Well, God created this because it delighted him to do so. And equally, Jason, it delighted him to give everyone a choice you see, here's the problem with humans. We are born into sin. John chapter 3 says that we're condemned when we are born. Why? Because we have a sin nature and we're going to sin. And all sin, any sin, separates us from God. And yet, God took that opportunity. The opportunity provided by evil. The choices that were made in opposition to God. And he took that opportunity to give people like you and me, Jason, a, a chance to say yes. It took me a long time. I was almost 40 before I gave my heart to Jesus. But he waited for me. He waited for me. Now, did God create the evil that I did? No, I made the choices of my own free will to sin against God. Just like today, I make the choice of my own free will to serve him. But evil isn't an angel. Evil isn't a human. There are humans and angels who do evil, to be sure. But God didn't create it. And he still is in the business of working all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. So just because God gave us free will doesn't mean that he was the creator of evil. He created the one who exercised his or her free will, either to say yes or to say no. In this case, even Lucifer, the original evildoer, who would become that old serpent, Revelation says, the devil. He's the one who started the ball of evil rolling. Why didn't God stop him? Because he is a servant of God not a child of God, but a servant of God, just like we are, and God is going to use him. And God makes it work in his plan so wonderfully. So I hope that helps. Uh, here's a question from an anonymous wife. 
Um, boy, I wish we were having a date day program tomorrow. Paula could talk about this. It says, can you explain exactly what a submissive wife looks like and how far submission extends? Um, anonymous wife, uh, a submitted wife um, is a partner in a marriage. Um, a submitted wife doesn't mean he's the boss and you're not. Um, it means that you're an equal partner with your husband. And the way it ought to look is that you submit one to the other out of the fear of God. That's what begins this whole process in Ephesians chapter 5, talking about marriage and the roles and the responsibility of husbands and wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. But just before that verse, it says, submit to one another out of reverence for God. Then it goes on in the 25th verse of Ephesians 5, Say, husbands, love your wives the way Christ loved the church. So here's the way it looks. And and an anonymous wife, understand that if Paula was answering this question, she would say, nobody likes to submit. It's contrary to our nature, to our human flesh. But we do it out of reverence for God. And so the submitted wife is the one who follows her husband's lead, As long as the husband's not asking her to sin, not placing her, the children, in danger, not violating any laws, certainly not submitting to any sexual perversions or anything of that nature, then what she's supposed to do is submit to her husband's lead. Now, the wise husband, anonymous wife, will consider, not only consider his wife, but consult his wife. Um... You know, Paul and I are so in sync now that it doesn't require long conversations like we like we used to have to have when we started pastoring Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. That was almost 24 years ago. Um, uh, we talk about things along. I know what she's going to do and what she's going to say, and she knows what I'm going to do and what I'm going to say. So we're walking together as one flesh, truly partners in this ministry. But if there is a really important decision that needs to be made, whether it's um, uh, ordaining somebody as a pastor or an elder in the church, or there's a situation with discipline in the church or anything like that, she's the first one I go to. And the reason I go to her it's because she's the only person in my life who has always and only wanted the best for me. I trust her completely. I pray. I, I don't think we have any secrets from one another. The idea is that we're partners. I can't do what I do without her. She can't do what she's called to do without me. So that's what a submissive wife and husband looks like together. Now, when you ask how far submission extends, I answered that a moment ago. It doesn't extend to sin. And I want to caution every man in this audience who can hear this today. If you have to say, woman, submit to me, then you don't understand submission. You don't understand what true partnership is. It doesn't make you the boss. It makes you the more accountable to God. And in the home, in the Christian home, a wife should be exalted. It's the husband's job to make her feel like the most beautiful, the most precious, the most loved woman on the face of the earth. It's important that your children see that and can rest in the safety and security of knowing that relationship exists. But unfortunately, somebody has to be the head. Jesus willingly, Philippians 2 says, submitted to the leadership of his Father in heaven, even though he was equal to God. That's very, very clear. That he is God in all of God's fullness, as the Father is, as the Holy Spirit is. And yet Jesus set an example for us. In his incarnation, he considered equality with God not something to be grasped. He let go of it. And while he was here on earth, he never had an independent thought. He said, I only do what I see my father do. I only say what I hear my father say. So he willingly submitted. And we're told in the book of 1 Corinthians that Jesus is the head of the church. The father is the head of Christ. But Jesus is the head of the church. He's the head of man. Man is the head of woman. And then he explains it was because Eve is the one who was deceived and Adam sinned. It's the curse. 
So it's not something anybody enjoys. Our flesh hates to submit to anybody. But we do it not because we trust our husbands, but because we trust Jesus. I think when husbands and wives can agree to see his point of view, well, then the only matter left to be resolved is faith. You have the faith to do it when your husband is making dumb decisions when your husband's inconsistent in his walk. Let me say one other thing, anonymous wife, and then I'll move on. The hardest thing that I have to do in my role as a pastor, when I'm teaching the Bible or whether it's in counseling, the hardest thing I have to do is tell wives that they're obligated to God to submit to their husband's leadership. I know how difficult it is to submit to an inconsistent man. I know how impossible it feels to submit to a man who doesn't make you feel beautiful or precious or loved. A man who one minute seems to be on fire for Jesus, the next minute wants nothing to do with him. I understand when men say, God told me to do this, we're going to do it, and then they kind of fizzle out in a couple of weeks or a couple of months, and then everything goes back to normal. I understand how difficult it is to hear somebody like me say, husbands, or I'm sorry, rather wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. But Jesus says, will you do it for me? An anonymous wife, the reason this makes so much sense to me, the reason it is so personal to me, is because a wife who submitted to the leadership of her husband when he wasn't being a leader is the reason I'm still alive. Paula prayed for me for 13 years. I know wives that get tired praying for their husbands for 13 days. God, why aren't you doing something? And Paula had those moments, for sure. But we can trust Jesus, and he's good. So I hope that answers your question. You might file this away. I'm sure it will be online somewhere. But Paul and I, I think early in January, are doing a uh, marriage conference in Garland, Texas. Um, I'm going to say the date, but I'm not sure I'm right. I think it's January 11th and 12th. So um, I hope that that helps you, Anonymous Wife. 340-9585. Let's go to Jimmy on line one. Jimmy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Well, I didn't know if you were really working today or not, but you are. <laughs> okay. I'm working. <laughs> uh, uh, oh, yeah, um, yeah, that's pretty interesting subject to talk about. Uh, but I'm, I'm guilty, too, man. I'm, I'm, like, I'm, trying, I, I, uh, I'm trying to love Jesus, love your wife as Christ loved the church, right? Yep. Yeah, um, give, give, giving himself up for her, Jimmy. Yes, and I do love Jesus a lot. I do. I do so much. But, um, yeah, my wife is working on that, too. She said at one time, she said, oh, that's, that's old news. That was written a long time ago. That doesn't apply to this world anymore. <laughs> and I said, oh, it does. So Jesus never changes. God is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And I know I'm not, I know that I am not perfect, but I'm trying. And, and I, uh, and I'm striving to be perfect according to his word. Yeah, Paul, Jimmy, Paul calls that working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Not working for it, but working out your salvation with fear and trembling. But let me also say this, and this is not just for you, Jimmy, but for everybody in the audience. You know, the only way we can do these things, I can't love Paula the way Jesus loves her. I can't. Except by faith, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. One of the things that I'm going to be very grateful for tomorrow, and I am every day, but tomorrow's Thanksgiving, is the fact that, that God put Paul in my life 48 years ago, and, and um, in an instant my life changed. In an instant it changed. And I was just too dumb and too slow to understand that until I finally gave my life to Jesus Christ so um, 
don't strive, but but let the power of God sort of propel you to to love your wife the way Christ loved the church. We we can't do it. Romans five five says the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit He's given us. If we Christians would understand that on both sides of the marriage, husbands and wives, if we'd understand that that His love lives in our heart for the person that we're asked to submit to or for the person that we're asked to sacrifice for, then by faith, well, we know we can do all things. We know nothing is impossible with God, but in our own strength, we can't do anything. So keep working out your salvation, Jimmy, but remember that it's got to be the power of God that propels you. And this audience has heard this a thousand times. The only way to have the power of God is to be with Jesus every single day. Thanks, Jimmy. I appreciate the call. We've got 30 minutes left. Normally I say in this program, but we got 30 minutes left live this week on the program. So 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. You're listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh. I'll be back in two minutes. Back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back. We've got 30 minutes left. Let's go right to the phones, Converse, Texas, and talk with Phyllis on Line 1. Phyllis, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Well, hello, Pastor Ron. How are you? I'm doing well, Phyllis. How are you? I'm great, thank you. I really want to appreciate your good teaching. It's uh, because of you I'm doing so well in school, and um, I really appreciate that. I do. Thank you. Um, you're welcome. What I wanted to ask you is, uh, we're in Second Timothy this this uh, week, and um, I kind of got need some clarifications on a on on Second Timothy two. I know Paul at the time he was telling him to be strong in, in, in uh, grace in Jesus Christ. But then I got down to uh, verse 4 when he says, No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. And also verse 6, if you could please um, clarify that, I would definitely appreciate it. And I want you and Paula to have a happy Thanksgiving. Thank you, Phyllis. We will. And Thank I'll you. We're going to have a answer. I'm sorry. No, I was going to say we're going to have a house full, so we'll have a great Thanksgiving. A lot of laughing in our house tomorrow. Oh, <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs> I send you all my love, and I'll, I'll take Thank the you. answer off the air. I appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you, Phyllis. Uh, in Second Timothy chapter two, now one of the things you have to know about Second Timothy is that it is Paul's last correspondence, his last letter that we have record of. It is his most personal of all the letters. Uh, he is giving a charge to this young man who is going to sort of take his mantle, not as an apostle, but as a pastor. And this is um, sort of his way of encouraging uh, this young man who has been raised up like a son uh, in the faith, anyway, a son of, of, of Paul. So when he talks about when he, when he talks about uh, enduring hardship like a good soldier, uh, no one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants us to please his commanding officer. Um, he's using an illustration, um, using soldiers as an illustration of what the hard-working pastor's life is ought to be. A good soldier, it's going to be hard times. You're going to have to fight in good times and in bad times. Uh, there's going to be opposition. And, and in verse 4, Phyllis, when he says, uh, no one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs, what he's telling Timothy, and I try to tell people this all the time, and it's so hard to communicate, but what he's trying to tell him is, look, your life is focused on one thing and one thing only. You're a soldier of Jesus Christ, so all of the things that happen in the world don't mean anything to you. You have one message. 
the Apostle Paul would write that, that his message is about Jesus Christ and him crucified. Nothing else. He kept it as simple and straightforward as he could. All things were directed for him and toward him. So this speaks about single-minded focus on the things of God. And that's the way we please our commanding officer, Jesus, in the same way a soldier does. You know, a soldier um, in, in war doesn't worry about what's going on on the streets of the cities. He's, he's or she now is involved in, in the task at hand. And so this is about a single-minded purposeness. We are so easily distracted, Phyllis, so easily distracted. And Paul is simply saying, focus. So that's what he's telling Timothy. In verse 6, he does another illustration, uh, and he uses a hardworking farmer. And, and Timothy, don't worry. When you are single-minded in focus, uh, you'll be the first to receive a share of the crops. Don't worry. God will take care of you. So that's what he's telling him. And in between those two verses, he uses another illustration as an athlete. And he says, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. So there, what he's talking to Timothy about is the ability to say, focused. Don't worry, God will take care of you. But right in the middle, he says, you got to do it the right way. You don't break rules to serve me, to serve God. You keep the rules. That's being above reproach. So that's what the focus there, Phyllis, is all about. Thank you very, very much, and we pray that you have a wonderful Thanksgiving as well. Let's go to Cindy from San Antonio Online, too. Cindy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. I've got kind of an oddball question. Um, in Ruth, uh, chapter 4, verse 7, it says, Now, this was a custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm anything. One man took off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was a confirmation in Israel. Then verse 8, part of verse 8, Therefore, the close relative said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself. So he took off his sandal. You know, it's in, in the reference of um, being Ruth's kinsman redeemer. And my question is, why would it be a sandal, and why wouldn't it have been a belt or a headdress or a, a pouch or a glove or something? And also, do you, do you suppose, well, did they get their sandal back, or do you suppose everybody had like a closet full of one-footed sandals? That's an oddball question, but it's a good one, Cindy. Thanks. Yeah. I, I'm um, curious about it because the book of Ruth is incredible. So I'll get off the phone and, and let you answer. Okay. Thank you, Cindy. Thank you, and happy Thanksgiving. You too. God bless. Uh, Cindy's right. This is book of Ruth is a marvelous book. You know, um, Cindy, I'm trying to think how many years ago now, 24 years now here at Calvary Chapel. 21 years in the car business for that, so that's 45 years if I, if my math is right. 45 years ago, when I first got into the automobile business, we made deals with a handshake. No signed contracts, no anything, just a handshake. Um, now, of course, they don't do that. So now you go through a whole long, lengthy selling process, and you sign all these contracts and commit to the obligation of payment, all those things. Um, it, my, my reason for using that illustration is that just times change. Uh, sandals were very valuable. You, 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 you lived in the wild. You, being barefoot was, was a very difficult thing. So the sandal was a value. And it was just their way of saying, shaking hands. It was just the, the, the method of the day. Um, and, and so that's what they did. You know, um, there's all kinds of ways to strike a deal uh, now, but um, the way they did it back then was to take off the sandal. You know, uh, Paul and I are watching uh, uh, The Voice. Um, uh, we we like to, I, I, we're just amazed by all the talent. Just the talent in this world is overwhelming. And one of the coaches on The Voice, Jennifer Hudson, and and she often, when somebody really moves her with a song, uh, she'll take off her shoe and throw it. 
Oh, that's a custom that we have uh, primarily in African-American churches um, for, for a very, very long time. Uh, and it's just their way of saying that's a good thing. Uh, I'm acknowledging your, 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 your effort. Uh, I'm appreciating the work that you do. My point is there's just all kinds of different uh, traditions, and that's all it was. Let's go to Shirts, Texas, and talk with Scott. Scott, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Happy Thanksgiving, Brother Ron. Thank, thank you, Scott. You too. Blessings to you and your family. Um, I want to make a comment, or and I want your, I guess your input on it also, on the the, the anonymous uh, anonymous uh, wife on the submission. Um, when I've come across that in some of the Bible studies that I've I've led, um, I've explained, and, and and correct me if I'm wrong or, or elaborate on this, okay. but I've explained that the submission in in, in the language there. For the wife, it, it's not really negative in that you don't need to lower yourself before your husband, but it actually to lift your husband above yourself. And, of course, it's a voluntary thing. I mean, you know, a guy that <laughs> try to make his wife submit, I mean, that's it's not submission. That, that's the whole thing that pleases God's heart is that we voluntarily do this, and, and we're not made to do it. But anyway, I'd like to hear your comment on that, and, um, and correct me if I'm wrong. Okay. Thanks, Scott. I'll do that. And it's not a correction as much as it is. I think we have to read uh, and keep the context of the passage. Uh, I think what you said um, preaches well, and I think it can be well-meaning. But what it really means is that the, 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 the husband is the head of the wife. Um, you know, there's only two places where women are asked to submit to men. Just two. In the home, a home governed by God, and the other, of course, is in the church, where to submit to the leadership, and leadership in churches is male. You may not like it, and, and, and yet that's the way God established it, and since it's his church, he gets to make the rules. But the idea there is really important for us to understand. It's if a decision has to be made, the man is responsible to God to make it. That's why I tell men, make sure that two things happen before you make a decision. The first is that you have really wrestled in prayer with the Lord over the decision you made. Every wife, every child deserves to know that their husband or father, before he upends their lives or before decisions are made, um, some huge decisions, some small decisions, it could be something as small as buying something. Um, they deserve to know, your family does, that this is a decision that was bathed in the prayer councils of God. Um, you, they have the right to know that when they're following you, they're comfortable, they're secure, because you're following Jesus. The second thing that a husband needs to do before making a decision is bring his wife into the partnership of making that decision. I can't imagine how dumb it would be for me, Scott, to make a decision without consulting Paula, who, who loves Jesus more than anybody I know, and who loves me more than anybody should. You see, if she's my partner rather than my adversary, I, it would be foolish for me to go and say, well, I've made a decision, we're going to do this. Um, I want to know what she thinks. I want to know what she's heard from the Lord in prayer, what she's heard from the Lord as she opens the word. I want to know those things because I don't want to be wrong. I'm, I'm going to be held accountable, so deeply accountable. When I stand before Jesus, he calls Paula precious. That's his name for her. Whenever he talks to me about Paula, he always uses that name precious. How dare I make a decision that affects her life without consulting him and bringing her into the decision-making process? So that's what it means. It's not lifting your husband uh, for, the, for the wife above yourself. Um, believe me, husband and wives are on equal ground. We just have different roles, but there's absolute equality. And in fact, verse 25 mitigates against that interpretation, Scott, because it says husbands are to love their wives the way Christ loved the church, giving himself up for her. And I tell people all the time that what that means is that you put her needs ahead of your own. So it's really by being the servant leader in the home, you're lifting those you serve to a position above you, to a position of prominence. And I think that's, I think, the sort of the opposite of, of what you said. So... Um, 
you know, we men need to be servant leaders. We need not to want to be the boss. We need to work out that role with fear and trembling because God has given us the responsibility to represent him. We're his ambassadors. Thanks for the question, Scott, and may you and yours have a wonderful Thanksgiving as well. Here is a question from Debbie. Uh, Isaiah 24, God said he will punish the powers in heaven above. Can you clarify that for me, please? And then I pray that your and Paula's Thanksgiving will be more blessful than years past. Cool. Um, here's Isaiah 24, 21. It says, in that day, and whenever you see that in that day in the Old Testament, it refers to the day of the Lord, the day when Jesus returns. You can read about that day, Debbie, in Isaiah, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 19, when Jesus sets his feet on the Mount of Olives and it splits and he destroys his enemy with a word. So it's in that day the Lord will punish the powers in the heavens above. That refers to the heavens uh, and the spiritual beings in the heavens above, those who are the fallen angels those who are so accountable because they stood in the presence of God, uh, and on the kings of the earth below, those on the earth who think they're important, those who rebelled against God. So God's simply saying, on that day, the day of judgment, I am indiscriminately and completely just in punishing all who rebel against me, the fallen angels and the fallen humans as well. You know, I always think about the kings in that day. In the book of Revelation, during the Great Tribulation, uh, there's there's 100-pound hailstones that are, are rained down. And men are going to go, it says, the small and great alike. So the kings of the earth and commoners are going to be in these caves trying to save themselves from these 100-pound hailstones, shaking their fist at God. But every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. So, Debbie, hope that answers your question. Thank you for asking. 340-9585, here is a question from Mike. He says, I know we go to be with Jesus when we die, but is it just our spirit or is it our physical body? Uh, Mike, there's um, different opinions about uh, the answer to your question. Um, we know without any equivocation that, that, that to, to die and depart with Jesus is, and be with Jesus is better by far. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So we know we're with him instantly. And I think most people would say, the majority of people, let me put it that way, I think the majority of Christians would say, well, no, our spirits go to be with Jesus. I personally don't think so, Mike. I think that the moment we're taken home to be with the Lord... Where, in that instant, our physical bodies are transformed. We leave the old body and we inherit the new one. And I think we are with Jesus physically in our glorified, resurrected bodies. And obviously that means we're with him spiritually as well. I think we're as with him as we can possibly be. I don't think our spirit is ever going to be disembodied, save perhaps for that nanosecond when... Uh, we leave this body, the angel will take us to be in the presence of the Lord. With all my heart, Mike, I believe that that in that moment when the angel touches us and we're in transit to the Lord, an instantaneous trip, um, we're going to receive our glorified, resurrected bodies at that moment and we are going to be completely full as we are going to be for the rest of eternity. Think about that. That absolutely amazes me to think about that. I do acknowledge that I'm probably in the minority. You know, it says the dead in Christ will rise first, will be caught up. To, I, I, I don't think that's what it means, that the graves are going to open um, and our, our bodies are going to be gathered. I get questions from time to time, Mike, about whether or not... Um, um, our bodies are going to, uh, if we've been cremated, for example, can we be put back together? Um, I, I think the minute we die and we're in the presence of Jesus, we have everything that we want. Here is a question from Anonymous from our mobile app. I've learned that there are two schools of thought in regard to Romans 7, that Paul was talking about his life before he was saved, and the other that he was talking about 
what it was like when he was a new believer trying to live according to the law. The latter makes the most sense to me. What do you believe about this chapter? Anonymous, if you read the chapter, um, uh, you can't miss the personal pronouns. You can't miss in the Greek the, 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 the tense uh, the present tense imperatives that Romans 7 is written with. And so the schools of thought, the, the, the one that says Paul was talking about new believers or, or what he was like trying to live under the law, that is con completely wrong. Here's the thing that we need to understand, and this should encourage and help all of us, because Paul was describing, the great apostle Paul was describing his own personal struggles. Now, if you've listened to this program any length of time, you know he is my hero. Apart from Jesus, uh, his life has meant and inspired me more than, than, than anything and everyone else combined. And if he can struggle, it means I'm not condemned when I do. It means when he's afraid, and he was afraid, when he's depressed, he was depressed. First Corinthians uh, was written. Uh, if, you, if you go to Acts chapter 18, his trip to Corinth, uh, he, he, he just wanted to die. And Jesus said, don't worry, Paul, I've got many people in the city. You must stay here and keep preaching. There were times when he wanted to leave a town, because, in Corinth especially, because it was so wicked. We all have those moments. Paul was flesh. Paul would never pretend, not ever pretend to be perfect or anything approaching perfect. He categorized himself as the chief of all sinners. And so the idea that, that Paul, because he's an apostle, wouldn't have had those kind of struggles, um, if that were true, we would all be sort of lost and on our own in our struggles. But the fact that Paul is describing his own personal experience. Think about this, and, and the tense is important. It's even clearer in the Greek. What I want to do, I can't do. What I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing. He didn't say what I used to do, I didn't want to do. What I don't want to do, that's what I used to do. He's not saying that. And then he says, So wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of death? I thank my God through Jesus Christ. So Anonymous, it's very important that you read Romans chapter 7, because Paul is now about to make the transition to the chapter in Romans 8, where it's life in the Spirit. And what he's saying is this is how he was delivered by Jesus. It was the gift of the Holy Spirit that was given. So thanks for the question. Please, please, please exegete that passage correctly. Let's go to Daniel on line one. Daniel, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron. Thanks for taking my call. I just wanted to ask you, uh, what, do you what was God, the purpose of the, new, of the Old Covenant, what was the purpose of God giving it in, its, uh, in the first place? And, um, and I'll just take your answer over the radio. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you. You two have a great Thanksgiving. Daniel, a couple of things. Um, uh, his purpose, twofold, really. One, because he'd chosen Israel. Remember, he didn't choose Israel because they were great. He didn't choose them because they were powerful. He chose them because they were the, the, the sort of the foolish um, uh, ones uh, of the Old Testament. Uh, the weak, the shame, the despise, the things that are not. Um, he chose a nation of people that was despised by the other nations around them. Um, and he gave them the law because to them he revealed through that perfect holy law his character. That they had his law gave them the opportunity to know this God that they were serving. To know what he was like, to know what he would expect. And so God gave them the law even though he knew they couldn't keep it, he did it to reveal who he was. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's what the angels were saying when Isaiah reported it in his vision. The other reason he gave him the law was because he wanted his people, Israel, to be a light to all of the pagan peoples in the world around them. That's why he did the miracles in Egypt, the, the ten plagues, then they will know that I am the Lord. He wanted the people to see through his people who he was. Now, the reason that is so important, Daniel, is because our job as a church is to do exactly the same thing. 
Let your light so shine before men that they will see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. We still, we have that same purpose all these thousands of years later. We have that same purpose, and that's to show everybody how good our God is, how faithful He is, how holy He is. And that's why when Christians behave like unbelievers, when Christians use foul language, when Christians drink or do dope or just fall into sexual sin, the world looks at us and calls us hypocrite. We're supposed to be light. And when we're not light, then the world mocks us. Now we also know from the New Testament, Daniel, there's one other reason that God gave the law. That the law would be a schoolmaster leading us to Jesus. You see, one thing that God always wanted us to do is honestly look at the law and say, you know, I can't do that. And even to be more honest, brutally so, I don't even want to do it. But I'll do it for you. But then we ought to come to the end of ourselves and say, but I can't, so I need help. Jesus is the help. Every Jew under the law should be honest enough to confess their inability to keep the law. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. See, that points to Jesus. He is the one whose blood was shed that we would live. So, Daniel, those are the three purposes of the law, and that's why God gave it. Hey, we won't be live tomorrow or Friday uh, because of the holiday. Pray that you have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Remember, the first person says, Turkey Day, correct them. It's not. It's a day we give thanks to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless you and keep you. It is an honor and a privilege to share my heart with you on the radio every day. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you on Monday Live. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.